0: Morning. morning. Uh, my name is David Sorn. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, morning to you. Hey, we've been spending the last few weeks just taking a few minutes at the beginning of each message to just roll out the new core values we've been working on uh, as a church. Uh, we're not taking our church in a different direction or anything like that, but we just wanted to put more accurate wording to the direction that God has already been taking our church over the last uh, number of <clears throat> years. And so none of this that we're talking about should surprise you or shock you or anything like that. So over the last few weeks, if you've been gone, uh, we already rolled out these, the following core values, and they are, we put God first, we pray the impossible, uh, we know our faith thrives in community, but struggles without it. This is why we're so passionate about house groups. If you're not in a house group, sign up for a house group. We want you to be in community with other Christians. Uh, we are disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And we will not rest until every person in our city has heard the gospel. And today I want to share with you our final two core values and also our new mission statement as well. So here's our sixth core value. It's we believe the Bible is the lamp of truth in the darkness. We didn't actually have a uh, core value about the scripture before and we really, it's just such an emphasis in our church, we really wanted to make sure that we had it, uh, this time. And because we believe that the Bible is God's inerrant, truthful word. It's the word of God. And not just that, it's a lamp, it's a lamp unto our feet. And it's a lamp kind of in the, in a dark world, in a dark culture that shows us where to go and it makes Jesus beautiful even in the darkness. And then our seventh uh, core value shouldn't be a shock to anyone in this room, unless it's like maybe your first Sunday, because we say this all the time, and it is simply this. We are not a cruise ship, but a rowboat, right? Pick up an oar. This is us, friends, right? Uh, We sometimes say that we are the anti-consumerism church. So if you came here today looking to be entertained, uh, you just, you, you entered into the wrong building. (laughs) That is, this just isn't us. We want to equip you to be on mission for Jesus, not to just sit in a seat and be served by others. And that may be a certain brand of American Christianity. That is not a Christianity you will read about in the Bible. Uh, Speaking of this particular core value, I have a way that you can apply it right now. This is amazing. (laughs) Okay. In 13 days, we are starting this massive Easter egg hunt outreach. Where we're going to see so many many people come to Christ. Last week, if you were here, I told you we needed 116 additional volunteers to pull it off. We still need 30, so we are getting there, but we're not there yet. Um, our, actually, our biggest need by far is parking directors—people who over across the street at the school will kind of just help cars. You don't. You need. Can you do this? If you have a functioning arm, you can do this, right? That's what we need. People are going to say, okay, it's maybe not what I would have picked right away, but I can serve in this way so that people can meet Christ. This is what we do. We serve our Lord. You know, we, we imitate Jesus. What did Jesus say when he came? He said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. What's your motive here today? What's your motive as a Christian? Is it to be served or is it to serve? And so pick up an or. I'll show you how you can pick up an or Grab your phone pretend it's your or and while you're doing this you tap the renovation church app and you tap connect right and then you find volunteer for the egg content, and you say i can do this at least one time, on Easter weekend, right? Or if you prefer paper, you can sign up, but there's a table out in the lobby as well. And then finally, our mission statement. We've, so we feel like as Christians, our mission is what? It's to glorify God. It's to serve him and worship him. But there's this other side of the coin where Jesus gives us the great commission, right? Which is to go therefore and make Not just believers, not just converts, but to make disciples, followers of Jesus. And so we wanted to put those two together in a really simple, memorable phrase. And this is our mission it's this Our mission is to follow Jesus and help others do the same. It's both of those things together. And so our hope is, with this mission, with all these core values, that they just become more and more this phraseology, a part of our culture. You'll see it in the lobby, on our website, but ultimately you'll hear us talking about it. Okay. Thank you for letting me do that the last couple of weeks. We're going to get into our message now. Uh, as a church, we are studying the book of Luke in the Bible. Luke is one of four books in all of the 66 books in the Bible that is specifically about the life, the death, uh, the teachings, and the resurrection of uh, Jesus. We are currently in chapter 23, which is the day of Jesus's crucifixion. Uh, We actually have a lot of ground to cover in today's uh, passage as we're trying our best to kind of march through Luke so we get to the resurrection passage in Luke on uh, Easter. I Honestly, I wish I had three weeks uh, to teach through today's passage but I don't, so I just need to stop prefacing about it and start preaching. Okay, everybody grab a Bible. Uh, There's a Bible uh, under the chair in front of you. Uh, We're going to be on page uh, 721 today. Uh, We just finished last week the last of Jesus' trials, and so they are beginning to march towards his execution site now. We want all of you to have it in front of you, whether you use your phone or the Bible here. Have it out so you can study it. It's not going to be on the screen, so grab it, and we're going to just walk through it uh, throughout this message. So We're chapter 23, so you look for the big 23, and we left off at verse 26, so the small 26. If you find that, you are in the right place. Okay, here's what it says. It says, As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, in other words, when the Son of God is on earth with them, what will happen when it is dry? Okay, let's pause it just there for a second. Okay, we know from two other gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, that Jesus is actually flogged. He's whipped after the sixth trial that we talked about last week, his last trial with Pontius Pilate. And so when he begins to carry the cross, John tells us that eventually he just can't do it anymore. He's so physically exhausted. I mean, think about it. Think about the weeks we've ever been covering. I know you might, it might be your first time here, but for those of you who have been here, let's just kind of rewind the tape 12 hours or so and go back to thursday night i mean what already has jesus endured go back to thursday night he's in the garden of gethsemane he's sweating blood the anxiety is so intense and so deep and right after that he watched one of his best friends betray him and then he's led through a series of not one but six false trials through it all it just keeps happening right so he doesn't sleep all night and then he's beaten not once, but twice. And so he just physically can't even carry the cross. And so the Roman soldiers, they just grab a random guy out of the crowd named Simon, who happened to be walking in from the country, and they made him carry the crossbeam of the cross. Now, Simon is from Cyrene. I always actually thought it was Cyrene, but I learned this week it's Cyrene. And I know what you're thinking, David, I don't really care what it sounds like, I want to know where it is. I would never fail you like that, my friends. I have brought a map, um, and here we go. So, if you look, here's the Mediterranean Sea. Um, we're over here. Uh, Jerusalem is where this is all taking place. Uh, Cyrene is actually over here in Africa. And so you have Egypt. And then just to the west of Egypt, the sort of the border is about right here in between Egypt and what is modern-day Libya. And so Cyrene is in what is modern-day Libya. In fact, you can go there today and see the ancient ruins of this city. And so Simon, this African man who was a Jew in Africa coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, he's kind of checking out, oh, what's happening over here with the crying and the crowd, and then whoo, sucked in to carry the cross beam, which would have weighed somewhere between 75 and 125 pounds. And noticed Simon's position in reference to Jesus. The picture of this is amazing. So look at the very end of verse 26 Where is Simon in relation to Jesus? He's carrying the cross, following behind Jesus. Now what's really interesting is this is the exact position that Jesus tells his disciples to be in. Luke 9.23, there's a famous verse there. Jesus tells his disciples this. Whoever wants to be my disciple, that's us, must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. And that the imagery of that is exactly what Simon is doing. What's really interesting is there's two other places in the Bible that actually tell us the names of Simon's kids. And that they become believers themselves. His whole family becomes believers in Jesus through this incredibly difficult event. But in following after Jesus, he sees who Jesus really is and his whole family comes to Christ. Which is really fascinating. Okay, so Jesus is walking to the crucifixion site. Simon's carrying the cross, and verse 27 says there's a whole just large group of people going with here. And the women are mourning. In fact, they're wailing for him. But then kind of surprisingly, Jesus sort of corrects, rebukes their wailing. And he's like, hey, don't weep for me. Weep for yourself. And as a first-time reader, you're reading it maybe for the 10th time, you're kind of like, whoa. You'd think he'd be like, yeah, weep. This is bad, right? But he corrects them. What, what's happening here? This is actually the first of what we're going to see today, three misunderstandings of the Messiah. Now, Messiah means like Savior, the one who's come to save all of us, right? And they miss it. They don't understand who this Messiah really is and what he's doing. And these three misunderstandings are misunderstandings that people had back then and really misunderstandings that people have today. Here's the first one that Jesus is going to correct. Number one, they think that his death is just an ordinary death. They're going, here's an ordinary man, you know, innocent, good guy, but just dying in ordinary death. It's sad, but not supernaturally significant in any sort of way. And because of this, Jesus begins to correct their understanding. Now, there's a little historical piece that I think kind of explains this scene a little bit better. In Jewish custom, whenever there was a funeral Or even in execution, it was customary for the women of the area to sort of go along and weep and wail. In fact, often they would pay females to go along the route and mourn. Like, here's 20 bucks, could you cry really loudly? And they would go along the road. I'm not joking. That was part of the culture. And so we like to think, we read this and we go, oh, you know, that's probably his mom and some of the other women. And certainly they were there. But the fact that Jesus is sort of rebuking and correcting them is showing that, okay, that's probably not his followers. These are not followers of Christ. He's correcting them because they don't actually understand what's happening. They're going, this is bad. An innocent man, not deserving of death, is about to die. It's bad. But Christians, what do we call the Friday where Jesus died? It's what Friday? It's good. Friday. Friday's not bad. It's good because without it, without his death, how could we be forgiven? Because he's dying for our sins. And so Jesus corrects them, and then he says, and by the way, weep for yourself. Because worse things are coming, both kind of in the near future and then on an eternal level as well. So we know from history that about 40 years after Jesus is crucified, so some of these people are still going to be alive. Certainly their children are going to be alive. Jerusalem in the year AD 70 is just destroyed by the Romans. The Jews try and rise up against Rome, which is not a great idea. The Romans just come in and level the city and burn the temple to the ground. And Jesus is saying, okay, in the future, you are going to be so distraught in those times that literally you're going to want to say, mountains fall on us hills cover us he says you'll be so distraught this is verse 29 if you're wondering about this verse he's saying you'll be so distraught that literally you're going to say blessed are the women who back then couldn't even have kids because they won't have kids that are alive to live through this brutal destruction murder of our people and leveling of our city and so there's sort of a lot of things wrapped up in this statement. He's saying, don't just cry because you see a man dying. Cry because judgment will come upon you. And if, and if you understood that I'm dying to take the judgment that you deserve, then tears would be coming to your eyes right now for a completely different reason. And they would be tears of gratitude. But you don't see it. And they misunderstand the Messiah. They see a man's death, an ordinary death, and nothing more. And there are plenty of people today, right, that still see this. They go, yes. I mean, basically there was no one. I'm sure there's some guy in his mom's basement somewhere, but there's no one that believes that Jesus didn't exist. And so people look back and they go, okay, it was this great teacher, and at some point he died, and that's a really sad moment in history. But they miss it. They misunderstand the Messiah. They don't understand why he truly died, that he was dying for our sins. Okay, let's keep reading now. Verse 32 says this, Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. <laughs> Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. Okay, let's just pause for a second. So you got Jesus, two criminals, Simon in the large crowd, they're all arriving now at the execution site, which we're told is called the place of the skull. Now, a a lot of scholars think that there are sort of geological features that resembled uh, a skull there, and that's why it was called the place of the skull. Uh, By the way, the place of the skull in Aramaic, which was the language that they spoke, uh, is the word Golgotha. If you've been around church for a while, ever heard that word, that's where it comes from. And the word Golgotha translated into Latin is the word Calvary. So if you've heard that in a Christian sign before, that's where it comes from. So if you grew up at like Calvary Baptist Church or Calvary Church or something, you can say that you actually grew up at Skull Church. (laughs) Just just super hardcore of you, right? I'm sure you did a lot of death metal worship before the sermon or whatever. Okay. Probably not. Okay. But look at this passage. Look at how they mock Jesus. They gamble for his clothes right in front of him. Which, fascinatingly enough, they think they're just getting clothes. They are fulfilling a hundreds-of-year-old prophecy from the Old Testament that this would happen to the Messiah, and indeed it happened. And then you got verse 38. There's the sign they put above him, which is true. He is the king of the Jews. It's the king of kings. But they're doing it to mock him. The rulers and the leaders, they sneer at him. The soldiers mock him. And they all say, if he's really the Messiah, he'd save himself. And that is the second misunderstanding of the Messiah. They expect that, okay, if this guy was really like a savior, he'd save himself. right? Why wouldn't he just get off the cross and walk away? Like a Messiah would vanquish his enemies. He'd find a way to kind of miraculously get off the cross You know, walk over to the soldiers and knock them down with a flick of a hand and then call down lightning on the religious leaders. That's what a Messiah would do. But what does the Messiah do? Verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And you can almost hear the crowd laughing at this because they're going, really? That's not what a Messiah would be saying right now. And they totally miss it because they're looking for a different sort of Messiah. It's weird because they think what Jesus is doing is really simple and small. They expect him to do something big, jump off the cross, liberate Israel. But Jesus is doing something significantly greater than they could ever imagine. And they miss it. Okay, let's read the last part of our passage. This is verse 39. It says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, so we have Jesus is in the center. Uh, There's a thief on each side of him. And just for simplicity's sake here, let's refer to the thief that doesn't believe in Jesus as the first thief. And then we'll refer to the other thief who did believe in Jesus as the second thief. And so look at the words of the first thief, because they're quite indicative of our last misunderstanding. So you want to look now to the second half of verse 39. What does he say? He says, aren't you the Messiah? And this is sort of implied like, and if so, if you really are the Messiah, then save yourself. And then what? And us. He's saying, if you were the Messiah, you'd save me. And that is the third misunderstanding that people had about the Messiah then. And a whole lot of people have this misunderstanding today. And it's this. People expect the Messiah will give them worldly salvation. So in other words, it's this. What does the first thief most desperately want? He wants to get off the cross, right? He wants physical, earthly, worldly salvation. He doesn't want to be on the cross. In fact, when you read the whole book of Luke, you start at chapter one, which if you're not reading anything in the Bible right now, start there. Just start reading through this amazing book. One of the things you'll see is people just cannot get their minds off this idea of physical, earthly deliverance they don't really, so many people, they don't really want this holistic spiritual salvation that Jesus is offering. They just want the earthly physical stuff. They're going, okay, yeah, Jesus, we've heard it. Kingdom of God, blah, 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 blah. Yep, here you go again. Heaven and hell, blah, 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 blah. What I really want is for you to make my life better and for you to get the Romans out of here. You know, I can almost hear the first thief saying back to Jesus, you know what? A real Messiah wouldn't be talking about forgiveness right now. He'd be helping me get down off the cross. Uh, Not that long ago, actually, I was reading uh, something from the always uh, insightful Timothy Keller, and he was actually talking about this scene with uh, Jesus and the two thieves. And he said this. He said, if you think about it, every single one of us, has talked to Jesus before like that first thief talked back to Jesus. The one who said, if you were the Messiah, then you would save me. Like, Christian or not, let's just be honest here. You think about some of the hardest moments of your entire life. Christian or not, who among us hasn't, from a hospital bed or crying on the bathroom floor, or reading the most devastating email you ever got, whatever it is, who among us has not said, God, if you really do exist, then here's how you can prove it to me. Get me out of this. Get me out of this hospital. Then heal my mom. Bring my son back. If you are real, then do this. Save me from this situation. Get me off my cross. There are maybe some of you in this room today who you are maybe even a bit unsure if you truly, truly believe in God because you prayed that prayer. You said, God, if you're real, then do this, and nothing happened. And certainly there are plenty of people outside of these walls that do not believe in God because they said, God, if you're real, do this, and nothing happened. That's why the thief is not in paradise, the first one. He doesn't believe. Jesus didn't do what he asked him to do. And so he couldn't be the Messiah then. But Jesus doesn't fulfill the plea of the first thief who wants to get off the cross. Why? Why doesn't he do it? Because he's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Not an assistant who does our bidding. I think we, in the American church, we are losing the mystery and the majesty of God. We've simplified, we've reduced God so much that I think a lot of American Christians, if we're just honest, they've lost reverence and respect for God's sovereignty and God's wisdom. I mean, should Jesus have answered that guy's prayer? The first thief to get off the cross? Because that's an interesting question because people do say, I asked God to do this if he was real. He didn't do it. And my friend died. Or I didn't get the job. Or whatever it is. So therefore, God is not real. You know, I think one of the ways you can philosophically just play this out is you can say, okay, well, let's play it out. Would the world be a better place today? Had Jesus just answered everybody's prayer that week, really? Because nobody wanted him to die. Even his disciples. So let's let's say he answers everybody's prayer. And he goes, you know what? I'm going to answer what people want. And so he miraculously gets down off the cross. And then he miraculously takes the other thief down off the cross. And everyone is well. And he just speaks. And all the soldiers fall over. And then he gets on a horse, and he rides the horse all the way to Rome, and he deposes the emperor, and he takes over the Roman Empire, and he gives notoriety to Israel and fame and safety. And then Jesus, while Israel is famous and powerful and safe, Jesus dies at the ripe old age of 75. And that was, by the way, that was basically everybody's prayer. That's what they wanted. They wanted this earthly Messiah that was going to give them comfort and safety an earthly salvation. So if Jesus did that and he answered everybody's prayer, would the world today be a better place? No way, right? Because Jesus then doesn't die for our salvation. Okay. If that's true, then is it possible then that perhaps the world wouldn't be a better place today if God didn't answer all of my prayers? Or your prayers. Let me ask you a question. Can Jesus still be your Messiah? Can Jesus still be the Son of God? Even if he doesn't answer that prayer you have for him right now. And is it possible that God is more concerned with your eternal salvation and just you knowing him than just your physical comfort and i think these two thieves they provide such a fascinating contrast so let's look just for a minute at the second thief the Other gospel writers tell us that they both actually started with insulting Jesus, but something changed in the heart of the second thief. Maybe it was how he heard Jesus praying. Uh, maybe it was how he heard Jesus forgiving his executioners. Maybe it was even he saw the sign above Jesus that said he was the king. Something happened and the spirit starts moving in his heart, and then verse 42 he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's not, hey Jesus, if you're the Messiah, then you would do this for me. It's, Jesus, I deserve what I'm getting, he says. And so I need a Messiah. I believe you are the Messiah. Will you save me? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I mean, how interesting is this scene? When you just sort of step back and you think about it, you think about this really, really important scene. Jesus is not being crucified next to two robbers on happenstance. Right? This is, what, probably the most important moment setting in all of history. So it's not like God's looking down and going, Oh, you know what, I never pictured it with those two robbers. How did those robbers get there? It's unbelievable. That's not what I wanted. No way. You better believe that God, at the most critical, important moment of history, very intentionally put two criminals one on each side of Jesus. Why? Well, because the truth is, every human being is represented in those two criminals. Much like Barabbas last week. We are sinful. We are broken. We have done wrong. We are deserving of God's holy justice. And a huge group of humans is going to look up to God... And they're going to say, if you are God, truly, if you're real, if you're really the Messiah, then do this. And if you do this, then I will follow you. And the rest of humanity is going to look at themselves and say, I have sinned against you. I am deserving, not of your forgiveness, but of justice. But I see that you love me and that you offered to save me. You are the Messiah. Will you save me? That's the picture of humanity. Son of God, and there's the two sides of humanity right there at Calvary. Which one are you? Which one are you? Truly, what's in your heart? Uh, The brilliant uh, J.C. Ryle, who was a a famous uh, English-Anglican priest in the 19th century, once described the scene this way. He said, One thief on the cross was saved. That none should despair, and only one, that none should presume. And so we see in this beautiful passage that we can be saved even on our deathbed. I've talked to multiple people this morning who've told me stories of that of their family members who just a genuine faith conversion in Christ even in their last hours. It's not like this thief had time to get his life together like he's just started. Maybe he could get some community service in like the last 60. It's all faith. The only thing that saves him is faith. And this is so encouraging to us, even in the last moments of life, that there is no hole of sin that you can dig yourself down into that is too deep that God couldn't pull you out of with his grace and forgiveness. And yet the other thief, the first one that didn't believe, he isn't spiritually saved. He's going to go to hell. He doesn't believe. I mean, think about it. Even in his last hour, he could believe. He could have eternal life. And his mind, this is so like Americans, his mind is still so focused on the earthly and physical. He's going, how can I get off of this? I've got to save my physical life. And eventually, his breath runs out and it's too late. It's too late. And at some point for all of us, and for all of our family members, our breath runs out. So we need to make the decision now to trust in Jesus, the one who came and gave his life for us. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, it's really easy. This is verse 24. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, He doesn't say, and then does a bunch of good works. He says, who believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged because that justice will go on Jesus, not on you. It was crossed over from death to life. So when we believe in Jesus as our substitute, as the one who died for us, he comes into our life. He starts changing it. The eternal life begins right away. And just having God in your life, that relationship you can have with him and knowing him, but our faith in him is what forgives us. It It is what takes that punishment that was meant for us and puts it on Jesus. So that at the end of your life, when your breath runs out, that you have eternal life in heaven and not in hell. And if you've never made that decision before, I encourage you to make it today. In fact, in just a minute here, we're going to take communion together as a church. And as we take it, if you just need to, for the first time, say, Jesus, you know what? I've kind of been living almost more like the first thief. I've been saying, yeah, if you're real, then you would do this, and then maybe I would follow you, but I just, I'm lost without you. And I see here today in your word that we're reading that you died for me. I want to be forgiven. I want to follow you. Say that to him from your heart this morning. And if you're doing that for the first time, we'll have our follow-up team up here in the front right after the service. I encourage you, come talk to them, and they will help you it's so helpful in getting the next steps. And actually, what does it mean to begin to follow Jesus as your leader. But one of the ways we as Christians, we do celebrate what Jesus did on the cross, is by taking communion together. So Jesus's crucifixion starts at 9 a.m. on Good Friday. If you go back a half day, the evening of Thursday, Jesus has the Last Supper with his disciples, and he institutes communion as a way for us to remember what was going to happen on that next day, on Friday. In fact, the chapter earlier than our chapter, Luke 22, it says this, And he, Jesus, took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant, it's the new contract agreement in my blood, which is poured out for you. And we follow those words to do this in remembrance of, of Jesus. And by the way, the Bible also says that this is something that you only want to do if you're absolutely sure you are a Christian, that you are a follower of Jesus, that he's your leader. If you're here, and I know some of you are just kind of investigating, thinking about Christianity, then I I urge you to, to skip this part. And maybe in a few months if you're following him, but this is something that you only want to do if you're absolutely sure you're a follower of Jesus. But, and I know sometimes people say, yeah, but I've been, I'm, I am a Christian, but I've been sinning a lot lately, so this isn't for me. No, I just want to tell you, that is so wrong. He knew that you would sin and that you would fall. We take this to remember that, oh yeah, he knew that and he still died for me. And so, this is, more, I, when we say that, that's more of just, okay, if you're actually not a believer, then wait. But if you are a believer, even if you feel like you're being awful at it lately, this is for you and maybe for you more than anyone else. Okay, for us as believers, we want to take communion. So if you would, under the chair in front of you, um, there is a little communion chalice. Would you just pick that up and just hold it uh, in your hand just for a second? In fact, you can take off the the bottom uh, cover and take, would you just take off the piece of bread and hold it in your hand? And I want you just for a second, as we're here and we're talking about the crucifixion today, uh, just pause for a moment. All of this stuff that happened to Jesus' body in these 12 hours, it was for you. For you, the sweating of the blood, the beatings, the whipping of his back, the nails in his hand, it was for you. Would you just take a few seconds and just sort of close your eyes and would you just thank him for that? Go ahead. body of Christ was given for you. Go ahead and eat of the bread. Now, before you drink of the cup, I want you again to just just hold in your hand and just take a moment and thank Jesus that his blood was spilled for you. You know, Jesus could have just came down and died in his sleep for us. But justice came down, and he was crucified. And the blood spilled out from the crown of thorns on his head to the nails in his hand to his open wounds on his back from his whipping, from the nails that went through both, the nail that went through both feet. He bled. His blood was spilled. For you. Yes, we say justice is meant for us, but look at the love here. Greater love have no man than to lay his life down for another. And Jesus is laying his life down for you. That is his love for you. Would you just take a second and just thank him for that? The blood of Christ was shed for you. Go ahead and drink of the cup. And then if you would, you can take the both wrappers and just put them in the top. And then there's a little spot under the chair in front of you that you can stick it in. All right, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. We know that we are, we've sinned against you. And yet you love us. It is unbelievable to us. We're just so thankful for that. God, I pray for anyone in here this morning who feels like they've just had the worst week ever. Or they've just really been wandering from you. I pray this morning, God, from your word, that they would see how much you are pursuing them, that you went to the cross for them, that you were broken for them, that you bled for them. And God, as we worship you now in this final song, I pray that you just woo their hearts back to you and they would run to you, run to your grace, to your forgiveness. God, just bring us back to you. your name we pray, amen.